Hello, everyone. Welcome to Book and Film Globe's Week in Review. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, Neil Pollack. You are contributors and listeners and readers and citizens of the world. Uh, we're opening with uh, Audrey Hepburn from Breakfast at Tiffany's singing Moon River. Music by Henry Mancini, lyrics by Johnny Mercer. I choose this song to open today because uh, it's Oscar weekend. Probably the least consequential Oscar weekend in history, but uh, I thought I'd start with this song because uh, it's, in my opinion, the best song in uh, Oscar history. And they let Audrey do her own singing, which is nice. George Papard, a writer, gazing moonily out the window. Every writer's dream. Being serenaded by Audrey Hepburn in their apartment building. cartoonist, uh, quote-unquote, interviewed Penelope Pussycat, really got to the bottom of the, the Pepe Le Pew scandal. Uh, Matt Hansen, uh, our contributor Matt Hansen, uh, who could not make it today because he's a, a teacher, a devoted teacher, wrote about um, the uh, this terrible new British adaptation of the picture of Dorian Gray, in which Dorian Gray becomes uh, an Instagram celebrity. That sounds terrible. Mia uh, McCullough. Also, does not have an iPhone. You can't be on the clubhouse if you don't have an iPhone. Wrote about a um, documentary called Hysterical about uh, women in comedy. It doesn't sound like a very funny documentary, but it does sound very informative. Interviews women who have been oppressed in comedy clubs over the years. William Schwartz from South Korea wrote about uh, South Korean cancel culture, these weird cancel culture controversies going on in South Korea. Very strange. Um, I obscure issues in South Korean history leading to TV shows getting getting pulled. So every country has its own problems, apparently. Uh, and then we have uh, Lily Moyeri, who uh, is, has joined us today. Uh, Lily, this is, actually, this is one of the cool things about doing this uh, room, and this I guess it's a show now, it's a podcast as well, is that I get to actually talk to my contributors for the first time. We've only communicated by email, so hello. Hello, good to hear your voice, Neil. Yeah, Lily. Lily Moyeri is a uh, is a writer and a teacher in Los Angeles, and she has written several pieces for Book and Film Globe, um, uh, mostly about uh, young adult literature. Seems to be her specialty. But uh, for this week, she wrote about a a novel called The Immortals of Tehran by uh, is it Ali Aragi? Is that the name of the uh, author? Ali Aragi. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't sound like a very good book. Uh- <laughs> You know, uh, as I told you in our emails, I feel so disloyal when I drag any kind of art created by Iranians as I'm Iranian-American. And right. uh, also, you know, our culture traditionally, well, in later years, we're not really encouraging of our children going off and doing writing and music and art and other kinds of, you know, 
non-professional or non-career-based right. type things. So when I see it, so, so you want you want your kids to be lawyers and doctors? Sounds, sounds very of like, course. Sounds like like, like uh, Jewish Jewish parents or Asian parents. Yeah. So when I do see you know one of my fellow countrymen do art, I'm super excited. Country people do art. I'm excited and I want to support it. Right. But then. I also have to like kind of be honest with myself as sure. a journalist and be like, but this isn't very good. <laughs> right. Just, just, just because they wrote, I mean, it's good that they wrote a book, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a good book. Yeah. Sadly. Yeah. yeah. So what is it? So this book, it sounds like kind of a, like a, a magical realist journey through 20th century Iranian history, which has potential. Right. Um, it totally does. And like the magical realism, initially I was like, oh, this is so like the tales my grandma would tell or my mom. And, you know, our, the whole culture is has so much superstition weaved into its traditions that, right. you know, it's like it's how I started my my review, which is like, you know, what people call magical realism is basically what we call superstitions, which is what the entire tradition is based on. And we don't consider it superstitious. This is like, this is a real thing. And the number of like weirdo things that I grew up with that my mom did that I just accepted and I believed in them. Okay. So if they feel like someone's giving you the evil eye, They'll burn this thing that I don't even know what it's called. But, you know, my mom's like, oh, I saw that person was giving you too many compliments. I have to burn this herb to ward off the evil that will rain upon your head because this person thought you look good today. Yeah. And uh, so that smell was constantly in our house as she's like trying to ward off evil. And and my mom is actually quite Western and very modern and all of those things, but she's also all of these things. Right. So it's this combination of like a progressive mom on one side of things and then, okay, here we go burning this stuff. Or she would hold a raw egg between two very particular coins and just right. like circle them around my head, naming different people that might have been giving me the evil eye. And then upon one of the names of these people, this egg would crack. And she's like, she, see, I knew it was this person that was giving you the evil eye. I just poked out his eye with this egg. Like this egg Wait, represents mom, their eye. Your mom would crack raw eggs over your head? No, she would like circle them around my head, oh. naming okay. the people that might have been giving me the evil eye. And uh-huh. when the egg cracked, you know, supposedly by her incantations, yeah. That would be, that's it. The, the evil has been dispelled. You're good. Right. Well, that, sounds, that sounds better than the book you reviewed. <laughs> it's that, the thing with the cats and everything. Oh, my. Wait, so the thing with the cats, basically, where there's the, the cats like, led to the downfall of the, uh, of the Shah? I don't, I don't, I don't yeah. quite gather. Yeah. Okay. yeah, no, it was just. How, how did they do that? This cat theme runs throughout the book where in the beginning, his great-grandfather who lives in a tree, and when I say lives in a tree, the the man lives in the trunk of a tree. Oh, Um, not in the the branches, in the trunk. No, in the trunk. And he says... Like a hobbit. Like a hobbit. And he says that, uh, you know, there's a story about how 
there was a cat kingdom. I can't get into all that. It's just too nuts. No. But there was a cat, cat kingdom. And anyway, they revolted against the cats. And then the cats rose up and trampled their way to Iran to decimate Iran for this wrong that had been done to them. This is like an old, like, fable, fairy tale type thing. And sure. then, uh, you know, the grandfather is, like, plotting the movements of all the stray cats in Tehran. And by plotting yeah. these movements, he's like, okay, February 11th, 1979, a revolution will happen. Mm-hmm. And then when they're describing, you know, the riots and the actual physical part of the revolution, there's cats flying through the air and, like, accelerating the revolts and the overtaking of the government. And I'm just like, no, oh. no, 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 man, no, no mention of the Ayatollah, just, just cats, just flying cats. Uh, well, I mean, you know, he's the instigator, but the cats helped. I mean, yeah. the cats helped him reuse his vision. Funny, there wasn't any mention of that in Western press accounts of the Iranian Revolution, the flying cats. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see that. Um, well, speaking as someone who witnessed it firsthand from yeah. the balcony of my bedroom, I didn't see yeah. any cats. Not not yeah. flying okay. ones, anyway. Not flying ones. So you, you were in Tehran uh, in yes. 1979. I was. I was. (laughs) And when I say I saw it from my balcony, I literally watched the revolution happen from my balcony. Crazy. And, well, I'm glad you're still here talking to us. (laughs) I am, too. A lot of people didn't make it out. So, uh, all right, so so this this book sounds, you know, I don't know, it came out in paperback uh, Mm -hmm. this month, The Immortals of Tehran. Has it been a big hit? something in the world or is it just is this a book that uh why i'm trying to i don't I mean i know i assigned it to you it, it sounded like something that you would you, you would have mm-hmm. an interesting take on but you know is, is this book popular or influential is it, is it i don't i don't honestly until you brought it to my attention i wasn't aware of it so that should tell uh-huh. you something yeah um yeah. The few other reviews, I wrote my review first because I just wanted to not have any other opinions. And then I read some other reviews and a lot of them did say similar things to what I said. Maybe not as harshly as I said it. And the thing is, the book is, it wants to cover every single thing that happened over like a 50, 70 year span. It's just kind of a lot. And it's just like a little bit like biting too much. And um, I did, I sent you a link of the, an essay the author had written for The New Yorker, and that essay is wonderful. I mean, yeah. it's wonderful. It's a total personal, first-person account okay. of his experience with time and everything. And, and I, yeah. I thought that was really powerful, and I really related to it. Even though I didn't have the same experience as him, I, I understand yeah. what he's saying so much, and I thought yeah. it was it was it was a great piece of writing, and right. I felt like so, maybe uh, that might be better. Well, I, you know, and it sounds to me like you know this is someone who read a lot of Salman Rushdie, <laughs> and uh, you know, and was like going going for that Midnight Children uh, vibe, but set in Iran. I I could be wrong, but it, it, you know. It's, it's, you know, that, that obviously, like, Rushdie's influence kind of looms large when it comes to this kind of book. So That's true. I don't know. Sure. Anyway, so um, can you recommend some, some books uh, by either, uh, you're on the same topic, um, either about, uh, you know, that, that period in history or by Iranian-Americans that you think people might want to delve into? 
Definitely. I pulled three that I particularly love. So this one, it's called Dear Uncle Napoleon, and it's by Iraj Pezishzad. It was actually written in 1973, and it is very much about, you know, it's a historical fiction novel, but it is hugely popular with Iranians, hugely popular. It got turned into you know, really a nighttime soap that every single person in Iran used to watch in the 70s. And my dad bought it for me as a, because I don't read Farsi, so he bought it for me as a the English translation. And because he had heard that it was, the English translation was really good. The book is um, a lampoon. It's a satire. So it's really hard, of course, to translate humor from one language to another. And, and the the translator um, nailed it, nailed it. I loved the book because when it was in Iran, I was way too young for that, yeah. for, for the, for that nighttime soap. And I, and it was really over my head and it was a little racy and, but um, I loved the book. So dear uncle Napoleon, very much recommend that one. And that's available in English. And, yep. Uh, yep. I have it on my bookshelf. Yeah. All right. Probably All right. available on, you know, not probably your local bookstore, but you can find it. Right. Right. That's not going to be at Barnes and Noble, maybe. No. It's probably on on, on Amazon or, or something. Or, or it might be on. Your local indie could order it for you. Yes. I like that. What else? Of course, uh, a classic is Persepolis by Marjana Satri. Satrapi. Sure. She's, I mean, that book, every time I read it, I just cry all over again. I feel like she's yeah. speaking about my life. That's not fiction, but it's a wonderful graphic memoir. Of course, it was made into a film that was nominated yeah. for an Academy Award. That I highly recommend. And yeah. then, of course, My Beat, which is uh, YA, the YA stuff, is Tahira Mafi's A Large Expanse of Sea, which came out oh. in 2018. It was uh, a nominee for the National Book Award for Young People's Literature. Um, Tyra is known for her Shatter Me series, which is a fantasy series, which is hugely popular, uh, which sadly I'm not a fan of. Um, yeah. But I mean, I'm a fan of fantasy. I'm not a fan of the Shatter Me series. But right. this book, A Large Expansive Sea, is the first one of hers I read. And I'm actually going to reread it next week because I'm reviewing her next contemporary YA novel for you, and I wanted to just get a refresher oh. on this one, even though it's not right. a series, but... And what's the name of the, the, name of the author again? Tahira Mafi, M-A-F-I okay. is her last name, and it's a okay. large, a, lar a very large expanse of sea. Okay, I, I, I'm, a, you know, I'm an admirer of a book called, um, uh, this is not by, uh, it's not by an, an uh, Iranian writer, but uh, uh, it's, uh, his name is uh, Kapuchinsky, Rezard Kapuchinsky wrote a journalistic account of the fall of uh, the Shah, uh, the Shah's mm -hmm. regime called Shah of Shahs. I, t I wrote about it on the site a few months ago. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought it was, a, I think it's an, an excellent account of, of the end of the regime and sort of the uh, political ambiguities of, of all that. He, he, wrote a, he wrote a lot about, uh, you know, autocrats and dictators. Um, also wrote an excellent book about the uh, fall of Haile Selassie in Ethiopia. But, uh, wow. But if but you want to get, I mean, as far as historical, like, like yeah. nonfiction, um, I highly recommend a book just called The Iranians by um, this professor of Middle Eastern studies called Sandra McKay. She okay. she nailed it. She nailed it. I, my dad bought that for me. And as I was reading it, every chapter I would read, I would discuss it with him. And because uh, he, 
I mean, he just is naturally a historian, and he told me that she has nailed it. Hey, Neil. Hey, everybody. Hey, hey how's it going? Uh, so, un- unlike other... I actually have met Pablo in person and spoken to him in person, uh, and uh, this is our first time chatting on the clubhouse, uh, and uh, I, was, I was very uh, happy that he was able to go to the movies last night and see Mortal Kombat. Uh, the reviews have been pretty good for Mortal Kombat, so I, I don't know if you share that, the um, enthusiasm of other critics for it. So to answer that, I wanted to actually start off by asking if I can do the Mortal Kombat yell. Or do you know what that is? Are you familiar with that? No, I, no I, this is not Mortal. I, I did play it a little bit in the arcade, but that's not my uh, specialty. But no, what is the Mortal Kombat yell? So it goes all the way back to like the original like games in the nineties. Um, yeah. You know the the first film in nineteen ninety five had the theme song that used a yell from a commercial uh, when they did the release of the home console version of the game. And it was just a guy okay. yelling Mortal Kombat over and over again. So I, I feel like that's a good way to kind of kick off. And I'll save your ears. Yeah, like, I'll do it away from the microphone. Yeah, I would like you to do that. Okay, one second. I'll, I'll give you a countdown so people, if you want to lower the volume a little bit. Mortal Kombat! Well, that, was, that was deeply moving, Pablo. Thank you. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you for that. Yeah. No, that's, yeah, so, that's good. So, all right. So did they feature the Mortal Kombat yell in the new Mortal Kombat movie? They did not. They did kind of a remix of that theme song over the credits. Um, I okay. didn't catch whether they actually included the yell. There was an article recently, I think, on Vice, I want to say it was, where they interviewed the guy who did that yell when he, he was like a teenager in that commercial, and he's like in his 50s now. He's like, yeah, I didn't even know that they used it for these things, and I didn't get paid. And yeah, mm. kind of, it's kind of show business for you. Hey, just another show business tragedy. Well, okay, so how is this, uh, how is this new film? You know, I'm kind of torn. Um, you know, Mortal Kombat is in my DNA. I've been playing it since I was eight years old. Like, you know, I love Mortal Kombat, and I was really hyped to see this. I was expecting to love it, and I didn't. Um, and I don't know if that's a function of, you know, my fandom. The the, You know, I, I don't really consider myself, like, a diehard fan of Mortal Kombat, but, you know, I, I was expecting certain things, and I got some of them and didn't get some of them. I think it's a, it's a bad movie overall, but... You know, right. as a video game I mean, adaptation, good, right? yeah, and I think that's a that's a function of the source material. You know, the the storytelling isn't really the strong suit of the game series. It's more about character and you know the gore and just being kind of silly. So, I mean, I guess the the question is, what makes a good video game adaptation? Like, is is it possible for that to be good with general audiences getting a bad movie if you're uh, uninitiated? So, I think that's kind of what I've been wrestling with or or combating with. Well, all right, so what did work in this? 
Uh, for sure, the gore, uh, the fatalities were, you know, that they, they harkened back to the classic games. There were direct references to some of the, the fan favorites. Uh, I, I feel like the, the characters were well embodied. Like it, it felt like they really brought the, brought them into flesh, flesh and blood. And, you know, I, I didn't have an issue with any of the, the characters. Actually, uh, Kano, it's, who's kind of like, you know, a periphery character ended up kind of stealing the show. Like he landed like 90% of his, his one liners, whereas like some of them kind of fell flat. Uh, right. but no, it just, um, you know, it's stylish. It, it looked good. It was, uh, the effects were great. It just, uh, you know, it, it felt like they were trying to use a story that is kind of, so hokey, they, which is kind of what you expect from Mortal Kombat. Right. I mean, I was like, I'm not shocked to hear the name, a Mortal Kombat, um, film was, was hokey. Yeah. It's not going to win any awards. It's, uh, but I mean, right. the, again, the question is, is it good enough for fans? And I, you know, I, I feel like it was what I expected in some ways. And like I said, it, it fell flat in other ways. But, you know, yeah, I've seen right. some critics who are fans of the games that are like, it's what I expected. And, you know, that is that good enough? Yeah. I mean, it just, it, I just feel like, you know, how many, there just aren't a lot of good video game movie adaptations. It just, it just is not easy to do a good yeah i wrote about that in uh my monster hunter review like it just i always feel like i'm burned by it and i thought this was it this was going to be the one and i don't think it was um i was very surprised by that i had seen a lot of positive buzz going into it and i might just be like maybe i'm being hard on it because i expected more as a fan but no i i don't think uh, a general audience is going to really connect with it ironically the sonic the hedgehog movie is the one that did it right Right? <laughs> yeah, that, that's the one that I feel like everyone agreed with. Um, for me, I think the first good video game adaptation was Silent Hill, and I, that's, uh-huh. you know, debated. Uh, you know, I'm a huge Silent Hill fan, and I felt like that really captured the mood and, you know, the style of the games. But, you know, again, for a general audience, some people may not have liked it. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to play a little, a little bit of that theme song, the original theme song. Awesome. Uh, get, get some flavor. Mortal Kombat. Mortal Kombat. So, Paul, I wanted to ask you while I've got you here, have you been watching the, um, the uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier um, show on, on, on Disney Plus? You know, I have not, and I'm a big MCU person, like, I could not yeah. wait to watch the next episode of WandaVision when it was, when yeah. it was on, but, no, I've avoided this one, I think what I'm gonna do is binge it when it's all said and done, and I've been kinda, you know, by osmosis, yeah, you know, finding out, like, kind of some spoilers, you know, mm-hmm. but, uh, I'm, I'm more looking forward to Loki when that hits, but no, I yeah. haven't been well, watching Loki this one. Was- Loki looks more formally inventive, just like WandaVision was, you know. I, I, I don't know, if anyone uh, here uh, has seen The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, please please raise your hand and we can talk about it. But I, I, I finished watching it in its entirety today. Um, and, you know, what I can say about it is that it, it, had, it was not formally inventive. There was, it was one of those shows where, like, characters just kind of showed up in a, in a country with no explanation about how they got there. You know, they were just kind of put these, like, sort of a... Marvel Cinematic Universe puzzle pieces that were getting pushed around the board, um, so it was kind of corny and um, in that way. And uh, the politics were like very sledgehammery, and the villain was was true, uh, truly terrible, like just a truly terrible performance. You couldn't wait for the the bad the, the chief bad guy to get it. On the other hand, 
Um, he introduced a, a great uh, character in, um, in uh, sort of the dark Captain America, played by Wyatt Russell, uh, Kurt Russell's son. Uh, and he, he, he really steals every scene that he's in, and uh, he's quite compelling. And there's also, they also introduced uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus into the Marvel Cinematic Universe as a sort of a, I don't know, spy, sort of mysterious figure, and she's very funny in her, her brief scenes. Um, and, you know, Anthony Mackie as, uh, um, as the Falcon slash maybe next Captain America is, you know, certainly is a movie star and can hold the screen. So, it, whatever. I mean, it, it, moved, it moved the ball forward. Um, you know, it wasn't, like, formally very interesting uh, I w- wouldn't call it like some kind of a legendary, th- like, you know, WandaVision was like a legendary TV show, uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier was not, but um, in the end, I was not like, I, I, was, I wanted to watch it to th- this morning when, it, when the final episode came out, I wasn't, I, I wasn't rolling my eyes, uh, waiting for it to be over, I kind of enjoyed the, the kitsch of it all. So, uh, that is my very brief review of the latest MCU offering. I wanted to bring up Michael Hill uh, to uh, Michael is a, uh, is a has been writing about books uh, and, uh, and film and, and to some extent TV for us for again the uh, the dawn of uh, my time at the helm of Book and Film Club. Hello, Michael. Asteroids. I just wanted to do a shout out to the video game I used to play as a kid. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that was that was also one of mine. We're I guess we're, we're equally aged. Michael, you also host your own podcast in addition to all this. Are you still doing that? Oh, I am indeed. Showbizsandbox.com. You can check it out yeah. there. It covers the entertainment biz from a business perspective. But we also have cool people on every week. Like uh, this week we had the comic book artist Pornsak Pichotchote, uh, who mm. has a new comic book called The Good Asian. It's set in uh, 1936 San Francisco's Chinatown. It's a new film noir with a, uh, a an Asian American hero. Mm. Very good. Uh, so, uh, so, but for us this week, you wrote about the uh, the New York uh, was the New York Independent Film Critics Awards, the IRAs. That's right. Quite, I'm a, I'm a member of the IRAs for. Uh, I've been there for since the 90s. Now I, I feel like I'm a yeah. newcomer. But it's been around since the 70s, but I'm actually kind of an old hand at this point, I guess. But yes, the IRA I, Awards. I can only imagine um, how, uh, how old the members of IRA, uh, organization where the kids that work on IRA, I mean, I can just, I can just imagine the apartments, the, 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 the dusty <laughs> apartments with the books piled to the ceiling and the old, the old uh, Criterion Collection DVDs. And the Kvetching. And the Kvetching, yes, the Laserdisc they wrote about, the VHS we wrote about. You know, it goes back, way, way back yeah. in the 70s. We've been around with people since the 70s. They met in film school. They looked at the, the New York Film Critics Award and said, we could do a better job than that. And they headed out to, like, I think a Chinese restaurant that first year, drank, argued, yelled, laughed at each other's pits. Oh, you idiot, that's a horrible choice. And they ended up picking their first year's winners in most of the major Oscar categories, actor, director, cinematography, and so on. And they kept doing it. You know, if you do something for long enough, people start to take it seriously. What was their first pick? Do you remember? Yes, the very first winner was before, you know, I was around. But the very first IRA winner was Barry Lyndon's uh, by Stanley Kubrick. Oh, yeah. Well, that is, you know, that's a movie that has um, uh, continues to be a favorite of critics. If not Abs- people. 
Absolutely. If you look at the past 46 years, they're clearly weighted towards art house movies, yeah. uh, independent cinema, international cinema, documentaries. Uh, however, if you look at the last 46 years, twice the Iris and the Oscars have overlapped. Once with Annie Hall and again very recently with Moonlight. But yeah. this year, if you look at the Ira nominees and winners, there's a f more overlap than usual. Not because the well, Iris are getting soft in their old age, but because the Oscars had no big movies to talk about. Right. The Oscars were extremely indie this year. Yes. We've talked about that before, and we're going to chat about it a little bit at the end of the program as well. Even so, and even so, the Oscars did not nominate uh, the Cajillionaires. <laughs> by, by Miranda July. By Miranda July. If, if, if you take the IRAs at their face value, Miranda July is Hollywood's greatest director. <laughs> That's right. And you have, you know, it stars Richard Jenkins, Deborah Winger, and Evan Rachel Wood. So we're looking at pretty right. heavy hitters who have been in, you know, Westworld on HBO, Oscar-winning yeah. films, uh, Oscar-nominated talent. So these are these are serious talent, and Miranda July is a serious artist. So it's the third time in IRA history a woman has won, which I think reflects in the individual yearly award. We've had major women win in our or be nominated or recognized for the best of the decade or best of all time, things like that. But it's only the third time in IRA history a woman has won Best Director. That's going back to Nancy Zavoka with Household Saints in 1993, a good movie. And with uh, two years ago, uh, the, the woman who directed Capernaum, a very good, heart-tugging foreign film, and now this year, Miranda July. And that's really the point of the awards. It's not so much for us to tell the world, here are the best movies, but just like all the other awards, giving an idea of some movies you might want to check out. It makes us right. watch movies all year long. We get recommendations all year long. And then every year or so, we do a fun uh, roundup of like the best movies of the 30s or the best movies of the 50s. And this year, right. because the decade just ended, we did the best movies of the 2010s. And shout out to Lily and Iran. The number one pick by the Iris for the best film of the last decade is A Separation, the Iranian film by Ashkar Farhadi. Uh, a Separation was, was up for the Oscar as well. It was about a, an Iranian middle class couple who sort of pull apart and their daughter's upset by this and what's going on between the parents. And then the, and the father hires a, 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 a caregiver for his father who's got Alzheimer's. It would say a classic drama, um, mm -hmm. universal in its concerns, but set in around. And so somehow it's very, you know, it's very similar. It won the Golden Globe for Best Foreign Film. It was nominated for Best Original Screenplay, uh, as well as uh, winning the Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film. So not an obscure movie by any, any no. stretch. Oscar Farhadi is a, a major talent. But there are other great Iranian films that people, if they've read those books that Lily recommended, the fiction and nonfiction, they could also check out A Taste of Cherry or a movie I hadn't seen before called Where's the Friend's House, which was an Iranian film I checked out because I knew I was doing uh, a best of all time list and I knew it was one I needed to, to, to watch and it's very good indeed. Let's go down the top Ira movies here. We got Kajillionaire, uh, mm. which, which, which uh, won for best picture. Uh, where, where can you see that at the moment? Kajillionaire has been in theaters, so it has not come yeah. out. You can you can rent it for six dollars online, so uh, it has not hit any particular service. But you can you can uh, check it out that way. Now, number two was the Danish film Another Round, which was nominated for um, uh, best foreign film. That starts Matt Nicholson. Matt Nicholson is the, the film of a sort of a dark comedy about a bunch of high school teachers who. Uh, Experiment with uh, injecting alcohol into their daily routine, and that you could actually—that's—I I enjoyed that movie quite a bit. That's available on um, on Hulu. That's that's that. on Hulu. You can also rent it uh, elsewhere. 
but it is available yeah. on Hulu. And the next film is Beanpole, a Russian drama, yeah. a terrific movie. That's available for streaming on Canopy, which a lot of people have access to through their local library. Uh, New York yeah. City stepped away from it, but many other cities around the country, if you have a library card, you can access a streaming service called Canopy, which is akin to Criterion. It's That's the sort of art house world they live in. And they have a lot of great stuff. So check out, make sure you got a library card and check out Beanpole because that is a terrific movie for sure. Ammonite, which was uh, the um, historical lesbian drama, that type of film that uh, Saturday Night Live made fun of. So, uh, so uh, it was, they had a funny sketch where they kind of fused that together with um, A Portrait of a Lady on Fire, very similar film. Uh, Ammonite is, uh, is about a... Uh, a, a, a lesbian relationship between a uh, sort of a female, she's not an archaeologist, she, uh, she's a, a paleontologist, and, uh, and a young, her young ward. Uh, that, that came in number four, and that, you can watch that, that's available on Hulu, I believe, as well. That's right, and, and at the bottom of that list of five best films of the year is the film that Poland put up for the best international film Oscar, though it didn't make the short list, but it's Corpus Christi. And that yeah. is on Criterion, and it's also available for rent for 3 or $4 from a number of other services. That's about a young man who gets out of juvie, a very violent mm-hmm. world, and is told to go to a steel mill or somewhere he's got to work at 100 miles away. And he somehow ends up becoming the priest of a local town. <laughs> so yeah, he, of course. Apparently, it's yeah. quite common in Poland. There are a number – it pops up every year or so. There's some other story about somebody becoming a priest in a small town. One person claimed the movie yeah. ripped off his story, and the director's like, this happens all the time. <laughs> this isn't that unusual. So your story is not unique. So that's kind of interesting, but a great lead performance that won our Best Actor Award. Uh, the man is called uh, – I'll, I'll butcher his name, but Bartosz Bielenia. Uh, he won Best Actor for mm. Corpus Christi, and Kate Winslet won Best right. Actress for her work in Ammonite, which some people thought suffered in comparison to Portrait of a Lady on Fire, but I think they both stand on their own. All right. Uh, and then there's some, uh, some nonfiction film. You don't call them documentaries. You call them Best Nonfiction Film. Uh, we reviewed quite a few of them on um, Book and Film Global. We did not um, – My Octopus Teacher, which we talked about last week uh, – Tied for first with a film called Dick Johnson is Dead. I, I don't know if we've written about that or not. What is, what is Dick Johnson is Dead? Dick Johnson is streaming on Netflix right now. You can see it in other places. And it's by a, a, a great uh, camera person, a, a, a talent, who uh, started to make a documentary film about her dad because she realized her dad couldn't live on his own anymore. He was getting closer to the end of his life than the beginning. And they were sort of dealing with that fact. And it's by... Kirsten Johnson, she, she, she created this documentary film. And so it's about him moving to New York and being with her. But she said, you know, how are we going to deal with the fact that dad's close to death? I know. Let's stage a bunch of deaths. So it's kind of like Harold and Maude in a way, except he's in on the joke. So you're watching the movie and he's walking down the street and an air conditioner slams down and crushes and kills him. And he's bleeding. You're like, oh, my God. And it's they, they just keep filming these fake deaths over and over, him having a heart attack, him falling downstairs. And so it's a, it's this morbid black comedy at the beginning. Uh-huh. But as his health declines and his mind is slipping away, it, it really becomes quite emotional. So it's a gimmicky setup, but uh, quite an involving movie and, and, and really touching at the end. So it's, it's really quite good. And then there's also very close to those was Collective, uh, almost almost one uh, best nonfiction film. That's the I watched that this week. Uh, it's available on Hulu. That's the Romanian uh, film about uh, the aftermath of a terrible nightclub fire and corruption in the uh, Roma- Romanian healthcare system. That's very uh, 
very verite. It's like it's like kind of like all the president's men, but uh, but set in Romania. Um, and and the main journalist is like this uh, soccer, basically, is a yeah. football journalist who like who decides who gets uh, be in his bonnet about uh, corruption in the healthcare system and exposes all this terrible stuff. Um, and then it um, then the film takes a does a does a flip in the middle and starts focusing on this you know reformist bureaucrat who comes in and tries to reform that the whole healthcare system. It's really uh, I mean it's, it's very depressing. Oh, it's depressing at the end. It's like, because we don't know what happens in Romanian politics, most of us. So we're on our yeah. pins and needles waiting to see who wins the next election, which is going to affect how much no. reform keeps going. And it's it's a gut punch. So is time. Yeah, which and, is, and, it's like, and it's like you watch you watch that sort of, I mean, I don't know. I, I can't even decide if it's, I don't think it's right or left. It's just the mob, you know, basically. It's like, it's not really ideological. It's just like you see all oh, these. Oh, no, it's, 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 the, it's the right. Because they're You're using right. nationalism okay. and, and poisoning hate and misinformation yeah. and lies and ignoring right. basic but, facts. But but they see these Barbie dolls trying to come in and start like you know hammering this stuff home, and you're like, oh boy, these, this huh. this uh, this this nice nice NPRish kind of uh, you know health minister is going is, is about to go down in flames. I uh, and then there's uh, the other two were were Time, which was a, a film uh, about the U.S. Uh, criminal justice system, right? Uh, yes. Stephen Garrett reviewed that for us. And, and then Crip Camp, which is about the birth of the disability rights movement. That's right. And that's streaming yeah. on Netflix right now, whereas Time is on Amazon. Yeah. Uh, I thought Time yeah. was formally interesting. Crip Camp is a little messy, but it's a, a, a crazy, inspiring story. It's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. So these, these, it was a great year for documentaries. You could have had the top 10 yeah. documentaries be your best films of the year and not even blink an eye. That's how great they yeah. were. We had great stuff that's not on this list, like uh, City Hall by the great Frederick Weissman and Jasper Mall, about a mall 50 miles away from where I live that's fading and failing away. So Yeah, and I, I think this was a good year for documentaries, too, just in terms of distribution, right? Because documentaries, you know, the, it, it's not like uh, the documentary pipeline shut down because of COVID. You know, it, it take a long time to make, and... And, uh, you know, they don't necessarily get distribution right away. And so you're, so it felt a little fresher. It would, you know, they felt like, uh, they were, um, I don't know. It, it, because of the nature of, of the way these movies get made, documentaries felt more alive in some ways than our uh, narrative films this year. That's a good point. Uh, a couple of, yeah, a couple other things I wanted to uh, point out from the IRAs, uh, was the nomination for, uh, of the actor Glenn Turman for his supporting role as the piano player in uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which was kind of a, um, you know, paint-by-numbers uh, adaptation of the August Wilson play. Did, and Chad Bozeman got a deserved Oscar nomination for Best Actor for that. Uh, but Says I, I you. Well, I, I thought, you know, I mean, come on. No, I, I don't think Chadwick Boseman deserved an Oscar nomination for that. I don't think it's a good performance or a good movie. I, I don't like the movie. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry about this nomination here for. I, th I thought the Glenn Turman was a head scratcher. I fought against it tooth and nail. Uh, I really? love August Wilson uh, like immensely. Uh, the, I think he's the greatest American playwright of all time. Greater than O'Neill, greater than Tennessee Williams, greater than uh, uh, Edward Albee. I, I love his stuff. I've seen it all the time. I don't think there's been a great film adaptation yet of anything that he's done. Uh, this isn't close. So, and there you go. Chadwick Boseman seems like a nice guy, I mean, but I find I, him a boring I, I, actor. I mean, it was the kind of performance that Oscar loves, you know, a lot of emoting, mm -hmm. you know, love speech, speech. It was a pretty direct adaptation of the play. I mean, although there was a, there was a lot of, of Viola Davis sweating in it, I will say. There's that. a lot of editing.
Yeah. There was a lot of, lot uh, of franticness. It was very Ryan Murphy-esque. I, George C. Wolfe is a great stage director. I don't think he's a very good film director. All right. Um, uh, let's see what else we got. Oh, uh, the movie that put us to sleep, Tenet. Uh, <laughs> easy, Sonic. easy target. Yeah. Um, although, you know, again, like it did have a, a scene where someone, um, you know, beat someone else up with a cheese grater. So there was that. That, that is noise. And they had Kenneth Branagh's uh, uh, accent. His Russian accent, that, that might put yeah, you to sleep back again. I'm yeah, very uh, angry at you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I didn't like, I'm not, not, not a fan of Tenet, uh, although I, I did like the use of, the che- best use of a cheese grater, I will give it that. Uh, <laughs> the uh, Dramamine Award, the movie that made us sick, uh, Mank, what, what does that mean, is it just because of the jerky camera motions? or? No, no, it's, uh, it's more philosophically that the idea of the Dramamine Award, it makes you sick for some, for some philosophical reason. In this case, you should never turn to the movies for historical accuracy. No movie is uh-huh. historically accurate. Even history isn't that historically accurate until it gets rewritten. But uh, Mank in particular, when we know full well that the idea that Wells had nothing to do with the screenplay is BS when it comes to Citizen Kane, Pauline Kael's uh, take on it has been completely debunked. To now make a movie about it, when you're making it for movie people in the movie world, it's a bridge too far. I can handle... Yeah. I can handle all sorts of nonsense in, in historical movies. I just want a good movie. But that is – no, sorry. I'm not going there. Well, and I, if, if you want to talk about a movie that put us to sleep. I actually saw a bank in, in a theater in Austin. Oh. Uh, yeah, yeah. They were, I, I, I think in order to um, get movies nominated for an Oscar, they, they have to at least show it in a, on one screen. And they showed it this summer. It was this August or September or something, and I went to see it in a theater. And I, I took several naps. <laughs> to clarify, uh, this is the one year you do not need a theatrical release uh, to qualify for the Oscars. You have to have intended a theatrical release. Uh, how, they, how they looked into your heart of hearts, I don't know. But, but that was the ruling this year. They will drop that again next year, I imagine. Well, they did. Regardless, it was on a screen. And I saw mm-hmm. it there. And, oh, yeah. uh, and I took three naps. All of them were during scenes where Mank was talking with someone who was telling Mank how great he was. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of things like that. All right, well, let's, um, I want to bring, uh, we have Sarah Stewart, one of our Rotten Tomatoes approved film critic, uh, one, of our, one of our writers for Book and Film Globe, and I also wanted to bring Lonnie Gonzalez, our cons- uh, contributor. Hello, Sarah. Hello, Lonnie. Hi. Hi. That was the first time I was there. I was Lonnie. Um, yeah, so, uh, so okay, so what I've read about the Oscars is that Steven Soderbergh is directing them. I don't know if you've heard about this. Uh, I did not. Uh, yeah, Steven Soderbergh is directing the Oscar telecast, and he said that rather than have it be a uh, traditional awards ceremony, it's going to resemble a film with a plot. Hmm. <laughs> That's what he said. That's what I've read. So, are we are we nervous about this? Yes, <laughs> I'm interested. Um, just because it is going to be so different. I know partially it's taking place at a train station, and it sounds yeah. like people are going to be like arriving in person, and there's going to still be people in person. So it's not just those Zoom screens that we've been getting for so many oh. award shows. I think it's going to be extremely cinematic, and he, he, he ominously said masks will play a big part in the storyline. 
I mean, to be fair, Steven Soderbergh is pretty reliable. I'm trying to think of anything that he's ever really screwed up and coming up short. Hmm. Well, I, would, I, I might question that, but I, I will say this. Because of the pandemic, the, gold, the, the Grammy Awards were completely unconventional, and it was probably the best Grammy Award show I've ever seen in terms of a television production. They really threw out the rule book. They really were innovative, and it was a lot of fun. I thought it was a really good show. So the Oscars throwing out the rule book, that can only help. <laughs> yeah, and, and the Emmys were, were, were bright and funny for one. Yeah. So, all right, but, you know, the Oscars, clearly the Oscars is going to be the most bombastic and pretentious of those three, though. I'm just guessing. Anyway, that's what we have to look forward to. Does anyone have any predictions about what's, what's, what's to come here? What, what, what are, who, what's going to win? We've talked about this before. I think it's pretty clear that, like it or not, Nomadland is your best picture, right? Yeah. Do you still think that? Okay. <laughs> It just hasn't, yeah. Has I don't that think been... it's the best picture. I just right. think it's going to win. Maybe not. Yeah. Maybe there could be a surprise. Well, I mean, Lonnie, you've been writing about this uh, on, you have, you have a, uh, a film podcast, and you you write, you write cover this, this ground pretty extensively on your social media. You you have a strong, uh, you have a strong feeling about Minari. Uh, well, I did like Minari. Uh, I don't think it'll yeah, win, though, just because no. Parasite won last year. And unfortunately, people will probably think Koreans, Koreans, we don't <laughs> want to do that again, yeah. even though they are totally <laughs> different and not even made in the same country. Um, right. uh, yeah, Nomadland has just felt so, like, meh for, I, I just don't hear anyone really being passionate about it. But yeah. um, it has just been, people have just been saying it's the front runner and, uh, I don't know, like maybe Trial of the Chicago 7 is going to sneak in there or something. No way. <laughs> you don't think so? <laughs> well, with it won that weighted... SAG award. It won the SAG Award. That's the with largest that, body yeah. of voters, the actors. That movie is so, that movie is so bad. I mean, it, that is, it, <laughs> it's, it's, it's so bummed. I mean, whatever. I, I, I did kind of like uh, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen's Abby Hoffman, but it's so speechifying. It's so pretentious. And, and that makes it a perfect Oscar relevant. winner. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hear you. I, I, I would not be happy to see that. To see it that could be point. the I crash mean, I, I would, of 2021. Yeah, I, it would be it would be worse if Mank won, but I don't think there's any chance of that happening. Mm, I, you can make a good argument for any of them. Mank is in black and white, and it's about Hollywood. Uh, mm. Minari has a great groundswell. Apparently, the father does too. It started to gain momentum and winning some other awards. Uh, mm. You know, the the trial of the Chicago 7 won the SAG Award, and those are the number one voting body. There were more actors in the Academy than any other group, and they vote. Of course, they didn't vote for Nomadland because it wasn't nominated for a SAG Award because it's not really filled with actors. So it, it's a yeah. apples and oranges. It didn't beat Nomadland to win the SAG Award, but it did win it. Uh, yeah, it, it, no, no, it's true. Nomadland has essentially two actors in it. Um, David Strathairn and uh, Francis McDormand, and the rest of them are just like are like band dwellers playing themselves. Does anyone think anyway. Peter Racy will win for Best Supporting Actor over Daniel Kaluuya? Oh, the I guy don't. From us. Yeah, no. I don't think so. Uh, uh, I, I thought Paul Racy was great, and I was really happy to see him nominated. But I think this is a it's an honor to be nominated situation, and <laughs> Daniel Kaluuya is probably going to win because he is practically the lead of the movie too. So. Right, Daniel, Daniel Kaluuya <laughs> plays, Fred, plays Fred Hampton 
in Judas and the Black Messiah, and you know that was a that was a you know, very showy performance. Um, you know, the, the, my one problem with that was that the actual Fred Hampton was was almost a teenager when all that happened. And Daniel Kaluuya does not play, plays him like a like almost like a middle aged man. You know, well, what about Mank? He was supposed to be <laughs> forty yeah. years old. Yeah, yeah, played play, play by a, a skeletal uh, Gary Oldman. <laughs> You know, 65 at the, at the youngest. Yeah. Yeah, true enough. True enough. Um, but, you know, I don't think anyone thinks that Gary Oldman... Is Gary Oldman even nominated? I don't remember. Probably. He, he, must he is. He must, he must for best there. actor uh, for Mank. Yeah, maybe he, he, he's, uh, he's, he, he's sort of a... It's sort of like Mank as, as Dracula. <laughs> Mankula. Uh, all right. Uh, well, we really, uh, we really uh, untangled this uh, this Gordian knot of the Oscars here. I think. Uh, you know, I, basically, it sounds like no one has any idea who's, who's going to win or, or I, how. I, I was going to be. Oh, uh, go ahead, Sarah. I was just going to say I was happy to see uh, Carrie Mulligan winning uh, Best Actress at the Spirit Awards, which which mm. boys my hopes for her uh, in the for the Oscar. I, I think Promising Young Woman is a is a an incredibly long shot for Best Picture, obviously, but I would like to see it win something. And I think she's a she's a possible, and uh, obviously Emerald Fennell will probably win for Best Screenplay. Yeah, I was going to say I, I feel like um, in terms of Best Original Screenplays, I mean, there's you can't uh, Promising Young Woman had has the most uh, the, the most momentum behind it, and also well, probably was the Best Original Screenplay. Could someone explain to me how Borat is an adapted screenplay? That's because it's a sequel. Oh. When when you're a sequel, you're you're inherently you're an adapted automatically screenplay. adapted. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. You're welcome. Michael, I, I have to say, I have to say for Soderbergh, um, he has done some great stuff, and let's hope if he works here that they'll force him to do another season of The Nick. <laughs> uh, the Nick has not officially been canceled yet. Well, it's, it's it's if he wants to make more, he can. It's up to him. You know, for someone who uh, supposedly retired from filmmaking, he should sure <laughs> make a lot, a lot of films. That's, that's he's, no he's like the Who. He's like the Who of film directors, or you know, yeah. final farewell tour as a director. Yeah. All right. I have a question. Does anyone yes. does anyone think that uh, uh, Riz Ahmed might overtake Chadwick Boseman in the Absolutely. Best Actor? Yeah. Or or Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I think Anthony Hopkins probably has a better shot just because it is, it's a really, I mean, they're all good, but it's a really impressive performance, and um, I think uh, that might be a place where the father could get rewarded, where it probably wouldn't win in other categories. I feel like it's a couple. If Viola Davis wins for Best Actress, I'm almost certain Chadwick Boseman will win for Best Actress. You know, if they do one, they're going to do the other, I feel. Mm -hmm. If she doesn't win, if it is Frances McDormand or Carrie Mulligan uh, or Vanessa Kirby, those seem to be the, the three, then I think you're more likely to see an upset like Anthony Hopkins or Riz Ahmed uh, winning quite deservedly for, you know, the, you know, Sound of Metal. You know, now that you've mentioned the father as kind of a black sheep, I think that would be an interesting thing to see it, it kind of come from behind. I, I think given the uh, – I'm not sure what the median age of the Oscar voters are, but I – 97. 97. <laughs> but I do yeah. think there's just going to be like this increasing glut of movies about dementia and Alzheimer's. <laughs> and I think this if the father takes best picture, we're just, it's just going to kick off a huge trend. 
<laughs> yeah, well, I can't wait for that. <laughs> can't wait for the can't can't wait for the uh, the genre of dementia movie. Yeah, I called it. You're, yeah. All right. Well, we, you heard it here first on Book and Film Globe, <laughs> the week in review. I'm gonna. Uh, I think we're gonna we're gonna uh, call call this a, a, a clubhouse room in a podcast. I want to close out with uh, a song that uh, I'm pretty sure is gonna win uh, best song this year uh, from from the Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga. I mean, it's, it's no yah yah ding dong. Play. I'm gonna play us out with that. So I wanted to thank you all for listening to our week in review. Thanks to. Uh, Lily Marieri and Pablo Gallaga and Michael Giltz and Sarah Stewart and Lonnie Gonzalez for joining us. Uh, Book and Film Globe um, uh, publishes uh, every day, and uh, uh, we are the easily the most uh, intellectually engaging and compelling uh, culture publication on the entire internet. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. Absolutely, because I write for it. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, what else can you say? So let's close it out with uh, my hometown, Husevik, from Eurovision Song Contest, the story of fire song, story of fire saga, um, this year's best song winner. Thank you all for stopping, and we will see you next week. Always value books and films and good TV. But now, during a pandemic, I appreciate them. I need them more than ever. That's why I read Book and Film Globe. Bookandfilmglobe.com is the smartest, sharpest commentary about what's good and what's um, not good in the worlds of books, movies, and quality TV. This isn't celebrity gossip, and it's not for woke 22 year olds. It's just smart, clear writing about the best new things to watch and read. Interviews with directors, concise reviews of hot new books, actors describing classic scenes. It's all on bookandfilmglobe.com. And there are three Rotten Tomatoes certified reviewers, so you know you're getting good advice. Check out Book and Film Globe. That's bookandfilmglobe.com. Bookandfilmglobe.com.